we have decided as a as a nation, and we're a bit unique actually in this regard, um, that schools are a place where athletic access happens. Um, we fund this with our taxpayer dollars. We have an expectation that students who go to school have uh, opportunities for extracurricular enrichment through athletics. Um, and we do that maybe, you know, without contemplating the reasons why. But when you do contemplate the reasons why, I think there's a very compelling um, connection there. I'm Sarah Grass, and this is season one of Hearsay from the Sidelines, a show about the place where law, sports, and culture intersect. Brought to you by Culture and Sports and Seton Hall Law School's Gaming, Hospitality, Entertainment, and Sports Law Program. This season will focus on the important topic of trans inclusion in youth sports and how kids have become the battleground for a war about gender equity and unfair advantage. Maybe you're an athlete, now or once upon a time. Maybe you're a parent or a coach. Maybe you're a lawyer, an educator, an activist, or all or none of those things. But if you're someone who believes that trans lives matter and want to know more about this debate surrounding trans athletes that has dominated so many news cycles, I'm glad you're here. I get it. This is not an easy issue to wrestle with. Many of us may not have close friends, family members, or colleagues who identify as trans or non-binary, let alone know any trans or non-binary kids. And for those who do, it can be hard to prioritize sports as an issue when trans people are facing attacks on so many other rights. A school administrator once told me when I asked how the district would support my daughter, who has a physical disability, if she wanted to play a sport someday. Well, she can do some other activity, like yearbook or the newspaper. It's not that important, in other words. Some kids can play, some kids can't. Focus on something that matters. But sports do matter, particularly for young people, because they are a huge part of the complex educational ecosystem they inhabit for most of each day. Sports loom large in American culture, and they are inextricably linked to the K-12 educational experience. And clearly, many adults care deeply about school sports. So much so that they've proposed and supported dozens of state bills aimed at limiting or excluding trans kids from playing sports, in many cases without any discernible controversy over trans inclusion in their state. I spoke with Shira Berkowitz, Senior Director of Public Policy and Advocacy at PROMO, a Missouri nonprofit focused on protecting and improving equality for LGBTQ Missourians, about the impact of these new laws. Missouri the place I consider my home state, passed one of the country's most restrictive bans on trans participation in youth athletics. The law, which went into effect just in time for the start of school, prohibits public, private, and charter schools from allowing students from kindergarten through high school to participate on a single gender team that does not align with the gender listed on their birth certificate. In summary, sports are no different than any other piece of life that you want to pull out from it's whether or not anybody has access to everything else um so that exclusionary idea of like um yeah you can go to school and we believe you that you're a boy 
or we believe you that you're a girl, but you can only go to school up until the time when there's activities afterwards or beforehand. Um, it's a very, ex- it's, it's too exclusionary. It's, it's carving out a space where trans youth cannot belong. Um, and that idea of how then do trans youths spend the, their, their school day with emotional and mental wellness knowing that they can only participate in school up to a point um like how do we care for them and it's it's uh it's an egregious idea that we would exclude anyone from any part of their childhood day exclusion from any aspect of education affects kids and trans kids are already a particularly vulnerable population A 2019 article looking at data from the Centers for Disease Control's Youth Risk Behavior Survey found that fewer than 2% of the high school students surveyed identified as transgender, but that more than a third of them reported attempting suicide in the prior year. Data shows that playing sports can have a positive effect on young people facing challenges like bullying and feelings of shame or isolation, and transgender athletes report that participation in sports has given them an escape from some of the negative feelings they wrestle with. In the second episode of his podcast, Skylar Baylor, a trans athlete and activist, sat down with his friend and fellow athlete, Leah Thomas, to talk about their experiences. If you've heard of Leah Thomas and seen any of the popular media coverage of her first place finish in the 300 freestyle at the NCAA's 2022 Swimming and Diving Championship, I strongly recommend taking 30 minutes to hear this conversation between Skylar and Leah. Skylar has been a swimmer since childhood and describes how, for him, throughout his life, the water has been a way to connect with his body and detach from it at the same time. Leah says she struggled with gender dysphoria and body image issues while swimming in college on the men's team, but delayed transitioning so she could continue to swim. When she reached a point of depression so low, she describes herself as suicidal and finally began hormone replacement therapy, she reconciled herself with possibly losing the opportunity to participate in a sport she loved, but knew it was necessary to save her life. Professor Aaron Bazuvis is a professor of law at Western New England School of Law, who has been writing on Title IX, athletics, and gender inclusion against an administrative law backdrop for two decades. We spoke at length about what she has learned over the years as someone who has examined these issues extensively, including the unique and specific harm exclusion causes trans youth. Um, The harm of being excluded from athletics for a trans athlete, first of all, you've got the same kinds of harms that you can imagine when any student would be excluded from athletics. So the, the, lo- the lost opportunity to engage in all of those enriching activities that I, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but in addition to that, um, particular for transgender athletes, um, there is the harm of having your gender identity rejected and denied by important key players in your life. Um, other than your family's acceptance, acceptance by your school community is is the most important uh, venue um, for affirmation to take place. And when that affirmation is withheld, um, it is seriously damaging from a, a, a social and psychological um, aspect. It is, um, you know, social science has demonstrated uh, that the biggest risk for trans youth in terms of um, uh, mental health issues, in terms of 
uh, increased risk of um, things as a variety of uh, of harms, but going up to and including um, the risk of suicidality is the withholding of affirmation and acceptance of one's gender identity. When Aaron presents the issue this way, it seems simple, doesn't it? Exclusion causes real harm to trans kids, so we should be inclusive. Well, if it were that easy, there'd be no debate, no court cases, no protests, no scholarly conversation to be had, but it's not, far from it. The next episode will go into some greater detail about recent state and federal legislation seeking to ban trans kids from sports, as well as some of the recent court cases challenging both their inclusion and exclusion. But what I want to zoom out for a moment and really think about is how we as a nation have become so polarized by this issue of which kids can play sports with who, when similar attempts to marginalize trans youth, like the bathroom bans of the mid-2010s, were so easy for most of us to reject, particularly when the narrative is advanced by many of the same players with the same underlying beliefs and agendas. Why has this campaign made so much progress without the same outcry? One key difference is that proponents of trans exclusion from school sports were able to recruit unlikely allies in the form of cisgender female athletes and their supporters. While it stretched the limits of common sense to argue that trans kids using the single-sex bathroom aligned with their gender identity caused any actual harm to anyone, trans inclusion in sports, some could conceivably argue, has a negative impact on other athletes. Because that's the nature of competition. The more able competitors, the tougher it becomes to claim the win. But do we really believe that the most important aspect of sports for kids is winning? It's certainly not what we tell our kids. In fact, we often say the opposite, that it's how you play the game that matters. Particularly in the context of publicly funded education, sports are part of a bigger and more holistic mission, just one component of the lengthy process of educating and socializing our children and adolescents to give them a solid foundation for the rest of their lives. While there are many reasons for sports at all levels to be inclusive of transgender people, Aaron and I agree that the conversation about trans inclusion in scholastic sports is distinct and separate from inclusion in elite sports. We have decided as a, as a nation, and we're a bit unique actually in this regard, um, that schools are a place where athletic access happens um, we fund this with our taxpayer dollars. We have an expectation that students who go to school have uh, opportunities for extracurricular enrichment through athletics. Um, and we do that maybe, you know, without contemplating the reasons why. But when you do contemplate the reasons why, I think there's a very compelling um, connection there. Um, sports assist students in uh, the maturation process. They learn how to um, respond to instructions, how to receive feedback and coaching. Uh, they learn how to get along well with others, um, uh, you know, all kinds of leadership and character education, uh, all kinds of physical education. Um, you can learn through your experience with scholastic sport how to have a lifelong relationship with fitness, with exercise, with all kinds of um, healthy physical habits. Um, the socioeconomic or socio-emotional benefits are, um, are overwhelming and compelling. And so all these things help students uh, create the right kind of um, mentality and framework and interest in and commitment to their 
curricular education, um, as well as providing an education in their own right. So when you accept that athletics is not just some second second tier, uh, not so important, um, you know, afterthought component uh, of what it is that our public schools are about uh, and the education that they're delivering, but they actually play an integral role. Uh, we realize that they too have to be that there's a, as compelling a reason for making sure that there isn't discrimination excluding people from athletics as we are concerned about discriminating uh, discrimination excluding people from the classroom. Um, in other contexts, in the elite athletic context, there are important reasons for elite athletes to be, for elite athletics to be inclusive. Um, you can look to that as a mirror. You can look to that for role models. But that's, but that expectation of participation, uh, that factor does not weigh as strongly in the elite athletic context. In fact, it's called elite for a reason because the vast majority of people are already excluded. Um, so in contrast to me, it just matters so much more to focus attention and energy and conversation on the scholastic context because um, participation is an expectation, because participation has a value that's linked to another uh, fundamentally important um, context education that we have decided already civil rights should apply. This framing of sports as a component of education is critical and one I will return to repeatedly over the course of this season. But in thinking about sports and education, it's important that we consider the broader social purpose of each institution. If we continue to debate the inclusion of transgender youth athletes in terms of the harms and benefits to individuals on both sides, we risk getting stuck in the weeds. Kim Yurako is a professor of law at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Her substantial body of scholarship has focused on non-discrimination and sex segregation, including in the context of sports, and she recently published two articles on transgender inclusion and girls' sports. Kim's scholarly perspective is focused on moving the debate about transgender inclusion in sports forward, away from rhetoric and emphasis on individual experiences. Without discounting or invalidating the pain experienced by transgender youth, she highlights the problem of basing the argument for inclusion solely on pain. One of the things I was struck by when I first came to this topic and, and really began to sort of read broadly and, and listen to um, arguments was how much of the discussion focused on pain. And it's not that I don't care about pain. I mean, people's pain is, is really is important and it matters. But, um, but as, a, as a lawyer and as a legal scholar, it struck me as strange because we don't, as a general matter, assign rights in response to pain. So, so we assign rights um, to protect against particular kinds of wrongs um, that we identify as sort of social harms in some way, but they're not, they're almost never sort of the, where the right is created because of a subjective harm. The religious context is kind of closest to, to doing so. But, but as a general matter, we find rights because someone has behaved in a particular way that as a society we want to discourage. And so, so I found that the focus on, on pain um, is sort of surprising and I wanted to sort of delve into and at least sort of think about, you know, um, it's not, it, there is a reason why pain doesn't form a good basis for legal rights. And, and some of the reasons for that are what you were alluding to, which is um, 
Pain measures are highly subjective. They are highly both variable and also suggestive. So they change over time. They change depending upon context if one is told that something is a bad, right? So after sexual harassment was created as a legal wrong, women experienced sexual harassment as more painful. That's not to say that um, sexual harassment beforehand was not a bad thing that shouldn't have been outlawed. And it was good that it was outlawed, even though it created more pain. But so the fact that there was an increase in pain doesn't mean we should get rid of the bad, that we should get rid of the cause of action. So, but that the creation of the legal right should be, um, and really I think needs to be, for reasons that are independent of subjective measures of pain. And, and then you were getting at too, if we created rights only based on pain, not only do we have these measurement problems, but then are we just being purely utilitarian? And often we don't wanna be purely utilitarian in the way that we create rights. And this is probably one of those contexts where we don't want to be because um, if we are thinking about creating rights to inclusion because of transgender girls exclusion, creates tremendous pain for, for that group. If we really care about pain, then we either have to count the pain that comes from to cisgender girls from inclusion and not just to cisgender girls, to all other people who experience pain from seeing their inclusion, let's say, or we have to justify um, not giving any weight to that pain. And sometimes we do. Kim's work acknowledges that the individual interests of transgender and cisgender women may not always be aligned in the athletic space, which is part of what makes this issue so fraught. But she offers a framework through which we can, perhaps with the objectivity the law requires, consider the categories of benefits associated with sports and craft participation rules at the various levels of competition that align with the benefits that should be prioritized at each stage. There's a lot at stake for individuals, um, certainly opportunities, rewards, recognition, both for individual athletes, but um, really importantly, also for whole groups. I mean, sort of for groups of individuals who are, are identified with those who participate and even more so with those who win. Um, so there's a lot at stake for, um, for individuals and for groups in, in terms of the outcomes. I think what's also really important about this issue is that it should push us into a social discussion about sports and about what matters with sports. Because I think it's very difficult to have um, a conversation about how resources should be allocated without identifying what the resources or benefits are and why they matter to us. And um, that was a part of the conversation that I, I wasn't really seeing happening, at least not explicitly, it was sometimes sort of under the surface. Um, but I think that's a really important, that, that's a part of why this is such an important um, discussion to be having. It really has to push us to be thinking about why we as a society care about sports, particularly at the school level, um, and, and what we want, what we want the benefits to be. And, and that's got to, I think, guide us then in thinking about what the fair um, and just allocation of those benefits and resources are. One of the things that I um, try to do in, in my work is try to categorize the range of benefits um, that I see sports kind of delivering. I mean, sort of, sort of the reasons why we as a society can really care about sports. And I, I um, reduce them to sort of three categories. And so the first category of benefits that I identify and focus on, I call basic benefits. And it's not my, my term, it's a term that's been used by others as well. Um, and, and basic benefits refers to the, the sort of the 
the, the physical kind of emotional, psychological benefits that participants get just from playing. So everyone who plays, regardless of whether they win or don't win, sort of the outcome doesn't really matter, but one, one gets sort of physical health benefits from sort of running around, learning sort of skills, coordination. And one also, um, at least a lot of the evidence suggests that people get sort of emotional and psychological and sometimes sort of cognitive benefits that come from playing. So people may learn um, leadership skills, they may learn teamwork. Um, there's also connections to um, sort of mental health benefits. So there's sort of a range of kind of physical, psychological, emotional um, benefits that come just from participating. So the idea is there's, there's a good that comes from playing sports. So these are benefits to participants. Everyone gets them just from playing. You might not get them to different degrees, but sort of everyone gets these benefits from playing. So those are the, the basic benefits. But there's another level of benefit that's also um, really important to this discussion of um, girls' sports and transgender inclusion. And those are the benefits that really go to winners. And so those are benefits like prizes, recognition, but also things like um, preferred acceptance to, um, to colleges. And that is sort of colleges often give um, preferential admissions to student athletes, also scholarship money. So there's both these kind of um, recognition type benefits, but also some of those benefits are real tangible um, that go to a subset of participants. And those are the winners. Um, and then, though, there's a, a third type of benefit that I, I actually think is, is perhaps even the most important one. And it's, um, it's the one that I think is sort of underlying a lot of conversations um, and, and debates on this topic, but is, I think, often the least articulated, least explicitly named. And that is that um, sports uh, conveys benefits to uh, to groups, and it conveys benefits even to sort of non-participants who see their group, uh, a group with which they socially identify, being recognized and rewarded. And and this was very sort of clearly uh, a benefit that was um, identified and anticipated and, and trying to be fostered through the passage of Title IX. That is sort of part of what Title IX was meant to do is it was meant to get girls playing sports, but it was meant to sort of encourage younger girls to play sports by seeing um, older girls and women recognized for their athletic performance. And then even taking it one step further, um, there is this sort of goal of sort of changing the way uh, girls and women's sort of bodies are seen and kind of socially viewed and understood and recognized and so creating um, a kind of a, a social image and perhaps social identity for women's bodies that is strong and autonomous and physical in a way that is not hypersexualized. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, um, I think, a real benefit from sports that comes through seeing the winners recognized and rewarded that goes not just to the winners, but goes to the group that identifies with those winners. In taking steps to protect the civil rights of groups in our society who have been denied them, those who have traditionally enjoyed these rights may experience some loss of individual opportunity. This has been the case with ending discrimination and improving access to employment, 
education, and places of public accommodation. But we recognize that prioritizing the rights of groups over the interests of specific individuals has a more important social purpose. Not only is it critical to creating a more just society, but there are other benefits like the one Kim mentions with Title IX. When barriers are removed and groups who have been excluded are finally welcomed into spaces, those spaces evolve for the better. Advocates of Title IX recognize that improving access to education and athletics for women could facilitate a cultural shift in how women were perceived and treated in all aspects of life. The same is true of access to sports for members of the LGBTQ community. Inclusion will benefit society as a whole, not just by creating new athletes and fans, but by encouraging the transformation that happens when our spaces become more diverse and groups who were once unfamiliar become our colleagues, teammates, and friends. Here's Kurt Weaver, Executive Director of the You Can Play Project, a nonprofit organization focused on ensuring safety and inclusion for members of the LGBTQ community at all levels of sport. So if you look at the stats, about 24% of LGBTQ youth participate in sports versus about 68% of straight youth. And so that's, that's a number that I see as, of, of course, a problem, but also an opportunity for those sports. You're looking for more kids. You're looking for more access. You're looking for more engagement. And frankly, pro sports teams are looking for more ticket buyers and more people to then show up and, and eyes on broadcast. So it's a ready-made community if you're going to engage them in a real way and bring the value of sport to that community. Um, and I think to your, to your point of why specifically do we need to go after this within sport um, and maybe specifically welcome the LGBTQ plus community into sport, you know, to have a, to have a history of not being welcome at a table, it takes somebody saying, Hey, come sit with me in order to then be welcome to the table. We don't just assume that now it's a different time. I'm just going to plop down there. Good news is almost every athlete we hear from with a coming out story while within sports. So they're on a team, they come out to their teammates, their coach, to their, to their friends has been positive. Um, it's, it's amazing to see OutSports did a, did a real big study around this for what is the experience of athletes who have come out, not for those athletes who are still closeted or aren't comfortable coming out. But the experience was almost uh, almost all athletes had a positive experience from those teammates, coaches, community around them, and it was a good experience once they did feel comfortable enough to come out. The problem, of course, being that that's a fraction of the individuals who are out there who are playing sport, who are part of the community, because before you come out, the group chat is still going on on your team that you're a part of where there's going to be some jokes made. There's going to be comments made. There's going to be terms used. There's still going to be the coach who's going to be motivating us through using some terms like, you know, pansy, sissy, fairy, and things like that, that we are still used consistently within sport. And again, is sport homophobic? Absolutely not. But for some reason, you know, when you're talking trash back and forth, it ends up in the space a lot of times because the way that we learn from our coaches and from our parents and, from our, and, and it, so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a cycle that we have to break. And I think that's where, from the athletes that are not yet out, it's certainly, it's a anxiety to think, how will I be treated? Because all the evidence right now points to group chat, coaches' comments, all the things that I see happening, the terms I'm, I hear on the bus when we're on a way trip, add up to, I'm not going to be welcomed here. Equally, though, it's great to hear that when they are coming out, they're being welcomed, open arms, you know, love and acceptance. But again, that's, uh, I don't ever begrudge anybody say, listen, I just don't feel comfortable because of this evidence I've seen. And so it's very difficult for me to say, well, listen, don't ignore all the evidence in front of you that all your friends are showing you to then hop over that big fence to then come out to them and let them you know, know your true self. So I, 
it's a it's a challenge and an opportunity certainly within that space. So I think the numbers are good to know what happens when an athlete does come out, but certainly it's a still a difficult space before that happens. As Kurt observes, things are better. Kids are more accepting and coaches are more aware of the need to treat issues of sexual orientation and gender identity more thoughtfully than perhaps they once were. But the culture of sports is still not a welcoming space for LGBTQ plus youth. When Mac Beggs was forced by state athletic rules to wrestle in the high school girls league in Texas despite identifying as male, he was loudly taunted with slurs from spectators. Andrea Yearwood, a transgender woman who was able to run high school track in the girls' division based on the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference's now challenged participation policy, recalled a frightening incident from the 2018 State Open in an interview with the Bleacher Report. Just before she competed in an event, she overheard two parents discussing her. He shouldn't be running, one of the women says. I know, the other says. Why is he running on the girls' team? He's a boy. And then the two women turn around. They look at Andrea, she looks at them. It is as if months pass between blinks. Why are you on the team, one of the women shouts at Andrea. Why are you here? Athlete Ally reports that when over 9,000 sports fans were surveyed, the majority believed spectator stands were the most dangerous and unwelcoming of all places for LGBTQ plus people in sports a statistic illustrated by the crowds of anti-trans protesters who gathered at the 2022 NCAA Women's Swimming and Diving Championships. Georgia Tech students, whose school was hosting the event, reported to a news outlet that protesters were both frustrating and upsetting. So while it may be true that trans acceptance has grown, we clearly have a long way to go. As I discussed with Dr. Jeremy Piasecki, Culture and Sports Executive Director, Athletic organizations don't exist in a silo. They are a mirror of the communities in which they exist and of our society more broadly. They reflect our existing values and beliefs, but also have the ability to influence and change those values and beliefs. One of the things that uh, I've noticed in the military and I've read about um, a lot over time is the the military, and in this case, the U.S. military, reflects the population of the U.S. and, and reflects the values and, and society of the U.S. And, and I truly believe that sports is solely like a reflection of the community that that sports organization is in. So if you have a small town, um, you know, in the Midwest and you have different sports teams, those sports teams have have. You know, we'll just use youth sports, for example. Those youth sports teams have kids from the local community, and those perceptions and biases and values uh, that are learned within the home and within the, in the local communities and families, uh, those athletes are on those teams, and, the, and they also have coaches who with, this, with similar values and beliefs and perceptions and biases uh, that are coaching those teams. And the parents are the ones who instill those you know, into the, into the, the youth athletes. And so you have these communities of, of people that believe certain things, um, you know, whether it's positive or negative or, um, indifferent and even that positive or negative is perception itself. Right. So, uh, you do that not only in small towns, but in, in large cities or, you know, in the U S as a whole, or, um, you know, other countries or even on the world stage. And so, um, you know, sports definitely reflects 
uh, all the positives and the negatives that we deal with in our in in the world and in, in each individual country and in each individual community. So if there's a country that's plagued by uh, scandals. Um, you'll see a lot of scandals that are uh, also in the sports in that area of the world or in that country. Uh, if you have a country that is uh, focused on equality and equity and, and the benefit of all people, like the true benefit of all people, then you're going to see that in their sports program. So it's very reflective. Uh, sports are very reflective of the societies and the cultures and the country uh, you know, and the regions of, of the world. And so, um, you know, and that's the great thing about sports and sports on the flip side also has the opportunity to influence change uh, within those societies or communities or countries or regions is uh, you can have athletes that, um, you know, stand up for others and, and speak about, speak out about things that are, are right or wrong. Uh, and to help influence not only change, but for people to think about what's important in their lives um, as individuals and as parts of community. And so that's extremely important, what sports can bring and what sports uh, and how sports can influence positive change. In other words, sports are so much more than just a game. This is the start of the discussion. Hopefully I've set the stage to do exactly what Kim suggests, which is to think about why we as a society care about sports, particularly when it's part of education. What do we want the benefits to be? And how can the law facilitate equitable distribution of those benefits? And does inclusion of a marginalized group in sharing those benefits, in fact, displace another historically disadvantaged group in a way that defeats the broader purpose? Or is the loss of special benefits for a few an acceptable cost for continuing to create a more just and equitable country? Hearsay from the Sidelines is a collaboration of Seton Hall Law School and Culture and Sports. All research and writing by Sarah Grass, music by Supernova, produced by Sarah Grass and Dr. Jeremy Piasecki, Executive Director of Culture and Sports. Links to all available academic and primary legal materials, media, music, transcription, and other materials mentioned in this episode are available on the Hearsay from the Sidelines show page, hearsayfromthesidelines.com. And if you like this show, check out cultureandsports.com where you'll find more articles, shows, webinars, summits, and courses for sports leaders of all levels.